And this morning, our passage is in the third chapter of Ephesians. We'll read verses 1 through 13 as we start chapter 3 in the letter. Young Christians, young theologians, here's what I want you listening for this morning. Ephesians is a letter, but it's important for us to know who the letter's to. And so I want you to see if you can answer to whom is Paul writing. And then here's the next question. This one's a little more tricky. Where is Paul when he's writing this letter? If you can put those two details together, it sometimes helps us understand what letter writers are saying to us in the letters they send. So see if you can dig both of those out of our passage this morning. This is the good news of Jesus in the letter of Paul to the church. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, if ever we needed to hear your good news again, it's a morning like this. A morning full of suffering for some of our own. We need to hear the good news when a life has been snatched away and we feel so powerless in the face of it all. And we worry for our own children, the ones who are close to us, our family, our friends. We worry for each other. How can we entrust ourselves to you knowing that this can and does happen. It's only if you break through our gloom and darkness and show us once again that you are good. We don't always understand how you work with us and how you do your work of grace among us. But if you will convince us again that you are good. And we can do what the apostle tells us. And not lose heart in our suffering. And show us, Lord, how it is for our glory. And yours as well. 
And we thank you also for the good gifts that you give us, for Hannah Melson born this week. We thank you that she is healthy and safe and beautiful. And we pray that you will keep her in your tender strength and grow her up year after year and all of us with her in your grace. Now, part the darkness that crowds us and let the light of love in. And for all of this, we will give you thanks. We ask it in Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Be seated. By the way, Paul is behind bars. He's writing from prison, but it's just now in the third chapter that he bothers to mention that and tell us that he has been imprisoned. And you'd never know it from the earlier parts of the letter, would you? There's been no tone of complaint or groaning in what Paul has written to this point. None of that even now as he tells us that he's locked up. If Paul hadn't mentioned it at all, you'd think he was writing from a beach in the Greek Isles, sunning himself, drinking something with a paper umbrella sticking up over the rim of the glass. It's remarkable that Paul has the nerve and the wherewithal to write to the church in Ephesus, don't lose heart. You'd think it would be the other way around. The church sending cards to Paul in prison and pressing that same message on him. He needs to hear it more than they do, doesn't he? Ah, some of the best things in church history have been written in prison. The letters of Paul, the apocalypse of John, the letters of Ignatius, the church father. Seven letters written to seven churches as Ignatius was escorted under armed guard to Rome where he would be executed. The letters and sermons of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, who was waiting to see what would happen with him. Would the Allies come and rescue him, or would the Nazis do him in? The reason prison letters and sermons are so powerful is you don't have the luxury to dash something off half-heartedly when you're writing from prison. In prison, you really have to believe your theology. And most of us claim a theology we never have to truly live in. We never have to apply to ourselves. We never have to fall into with all our weight. But not if you're in prison. That's where it all changes. You really have to believe the things you say you believe. Not knowing if Caesar or some Roman official with an eye on a promotion ready to make an example out of some inconvenient Christian, not knowing if either or one of them or both of them will bring you to a frightening end. And so, Paul writes what he writes because he believes it with all his heart. He has predestined you to be rich in Christ Jesus, he wrote in chapter 1. 
He has put all things under the feet of Christ, the King of the universe, at the end of chapter 1. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but in love you have been raised in His grace, he wrote in chapter 2. And Christ tears down the walls of our divisions and He makes Himself our peace, Paul wrote at the end of chapter 2. And it's ironic that Paul, who just wrote to us in the previous section about walls coming down, is locked away. But he really believes these things. And that's why he can write to us in the church about not losing heart. Again, it's shocking to us because if we were in his place, we would be devastated. We would be depressed and discouraged under these circumstances. And after all, Paul wasn't like American gangsters in prison. You hear story after story about gangsters and mob bosses like Frank Costello, who all the while he was in prison, smoked expensive English cigarettes. The guards never knew how he smuggled them in, but he had an endless supply, a pipeline. And every night, Costello dined on steaks, perfectly cooked, seared and crusty on the outside, juicy and pink on the inside. And prison officials never discovered where the steaks came from, who cooked them, who served them to him. And then one day, his lawyer came to consult with him in prison, and his lawyer was despondent. He wasn't able to get tickets for a Broadway show he hoped to take his wife and her parents to see while they were visiting town. After the consultation ended, an hour later, a knock came on the lawyer's hotel room door. And there was another gangster standing there, with his eyes hidden beneath the brim of a slouch hat. And he held out an envelope with four of the impossible-to-get tickets tucked inside. For gangsters, prison isn't like prison. It's just another seat of power. But for Paul, prison is prison, and it means a loss of power. Maybe he enjoyed the irony of it. He used to throw Christians in the clink for their love of Jesus, and now he has been in and out of every jail in the whole Mediterranean because he's been made to love Christ too. It's a far cry from what he used to be in his Pharisee days. Paul wore Power like a robe, and he flashed it like a police badge. It got him places. It got things done. It got people killed and removed and silenced. It opened doors. It closed doors. And then Paul's power came to nothing when one day the resurrected Jesus, bigger than life, stood in Paul's way with blinding glory as Paul was off to rough up another church. And Paul hasn't had any power to call his own since. He's only had the power of this Jesus to lean on. And Jesus, despite all of Paul's best pharisaical efforts in his earlier stage of life, and now despite all Caesar's imperial attempts, this Jesus hasn't lost any of his power. And Paul sits in his prison cell 
enjoying the mystery of it all. That's what he calls it four times in the passage. He calls it a mystery. Maybe it's good that it took Paul three chapters before he mentions that he's in prison. Because nobody likes imprisoned apostles. We want our apostles to have immunity. We want the apostles to be able to move freely and to whip up crowds and to get away scot-free. To always be one step ahead of the authorities who want to shut them up. We like to think of our apostles as superheroes. At the very least, they're swashbucklers, always itching for a fight and always walking away without a scratch. That's how we want the gospel to show up. Not through apostles with mugshots. And we want the gospel to be untouchable. We're frustrated when it's detained for questioning. We like a gospel that is winning in the polls. And sitting in the seats of power. And co-opting cultural influence for its own purposes. And every time some mover and shaker in society finds religion and starts talking like a true believer, Christians everywhere begin to drool. Because maybe this is it. Maybe this will be the golden age for us. Huge churches, cathedral-like, will swarm the landscape and role models of faith will take up lofty, visible positions in plain view to attract all of our neighbors. And maybe, maybe we won't look like fools anymore. Maybe we'll look like the ones who knew it all along. Maybe we'll get some credit. But here in the third chapter, Paul makes his one phone call. And he says... I'm in prison again. And he knows the embarrassment of it. He knows you're embarrassed by it. And that's why he started the letter with two chapters choked full with the majesty and might of Jesus. Because those things are hard to see and hard to believe when an apostle is locked up. But even here behind bars, Paul does a fine bit of pastoring. He says to us, look, I know all this is frustrating... It's frightening even. You're wondering, why follow a Savior? Why believe a faith that's going to get you a life sentence or maybe worse? But here's what I want you to know, Paul says. I'm a prisoner for you. Okay, can we be honest? That's weird. That doesn't make any sense. How does that help, Paul, that you are a prisoner for us? How does it help us at all that you're locked up? Paul doesn't stop to explain, he just keeps moving into verse 2, and he expects that we'll keep up. This stewardship of God's grace was given to me for you. If you can read between the lines at all, if you can interpret those things at all, Paul's saying, it's God's grace that I'm a prisoner. Okay, that's even worse than saying, I'm a prisoner for you. But Paul kicks back, lounges in his cell, and revels in the mystery of it all. A head-spinning, heart-trembling mystery. One that it feels like we'll never get to the bottom of. 
the great Albert Einstein was once offered the presidency of Israel. Now, that's amazing in itself. The power brokers, the Israeli power brokers, show up in Princeton, New Jersey, and say to Einstein, you don't have to go to the trouble of campaigning or running for office or putting together a platform. You don't have to go through the inconvenience of an election day. We're just going to give it to you if you'll agree to come govern us with your immense mind. And Einstein said, thank you, but no. I have no head for human problems, he said. The mysteries of astrophysics, the mysteries of planets and orbits and time, standing still, moving backward. The mysteries of relativity are a cakewalk for me, but the mysteries of who we are and what we need, those make my head hurt. But Paul, the converted Christian hater, Paul, the apostle, Paul, the prisoner for the gospel, the prisoner for the church, he's a well-suited guide through these deepest mysteries of the universe. And it's funny that he claims the gospel is working in him by God's power in verse 7 because the gospel doesn't look powerful when it looks like this. And that's his point. The mystery is, Paul writes, the mystery is the gospel comes to us looking powerless. An infant born in Bethlehem under a star no one notices but three strangers from the east. A Galilean carpenter claiming to be Messiah preaching in the boondocks. That same would-be Messiah nailed up to a Roman cross between two crooks. Taken down limp from his cross. Buried and sealed up in a stone tomb. And now his apostle under house arrest. Nothing too impressive in any of it. But all of this, all of it is God's power to save those who believe. The mystery is the gospel comes looking powerless because it speaks our language. It knows our condition. Which pushes us into the next layer of the mystery. The mystery is, Paul writes, the mystery is the gospel comes to us in powerlessness to overcome our powerlessness. And, he says, it's for Jews and Gentiles, according to verse 10. This is for the church. This mystery is for Jews who are powerless because the more they tried to keep God's law, the more they pushed themselves farther and farther away from Him. God loved them. And this mystery is for Gentiles who are powerless because they never had God's law to keep. They had no claim on him. They were left out and overlooked. And this gospel is going to have to overcome both versions of powerlessness. So, on the week that Jesus entered Jerusalem, as he was readying readying himself to be crucified at the end of the week, 
he rides into the city and there are crowds waiting for him in the streets and they're worshiping him and the Pharisees object to the unruliness of the scene. And they say to Jesus, rebuke your disciples, quiet them down. And Jesus says to them, you can quiet them down if you want, but if you do, the rocks will cry out. If you take away the worship of living things who have it woven into their DNA to worship me, you know what happens next? Dead things rise up and worship me. Some commentators think, and I happen to agree, that Jesus wasn't talking about rocks like stone and granite. He was using a metaphor and he was speaking of the Gentiles. And that's why at the end of the last chapter, Paul can write about Jews and Gentiles being put together as the construction of a house, a dwelling place for the living God. So what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, go ahead, silence the Jews, the people who are supposed to be looking for the Christ, the coming one. The non-Jews will receive him. There are plenty of dead things to be made alive. doesn't really matter if they are Abraham's children or not. The powerlessness of rocks overcome when Gentiles are made followers of Jesus Members of his body in verse 6. Stones built into a dwelling place for the living God. Then there was Peter at the Last Supper. He didn't understand any of what was happening that week. He was trying to be devout in his own way. He was really just in the way. And before the Passover, at which Jesus would reveal himself to the twelve as the lamb of sacrifice for their sins... Jesus washed their feet and Peter was beside himself. He was livid. You can't wash my feet. This is below you. This is below me to think of you this way. To think I would need you to do this for me. And Jesus says to Peter, this is what I came for. If I don't wash you, Peter, you have no part of me. And no one else can wash the over-trafficked, dirty parts of you. And you can't wash yourself, Peter. You'll have to let me do it. The powerlessness of a dirty disciple overcome by a Savior with a basin of dingy water and a towel around his waist and a cross waiting for him the next day. And then there's the rich young ruler. He rolls up wearing all the most fashionable brands. No one can say he isn't stylish. And just to look at him, you can tell he comes from money. And he has everything that goes along with it. He has connections and influence and power. But he doesn't have peace. And he doesn't have assurance. So he says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Give me the next merit badge to earn. Help me to rely on myself and feel good about doing it. And Jesus answers him, but not in the way that he's hoping. Jesus says, all you have to do to be saved is liquidate everything. Lose it. Give your money and your businesses away. All your offshore interests, all your stocks, all your shares. Sell, sell, sell. 
give it to the poor and come follow me. Now why would Jesus say that? For the very same reason he said to the Pharisees, great, silence the Jews. The Gentiles will love and worship me. For the same reason he said to Peter and the twelve, don't argue, take off your shoes. He was saying, make yourself powerless because that's what you are. And when you know you are powerless, you will trust my unfailing, incorruptible strength to save you. When you are powerless, then you can enjoy my love. And after all of that, Paul still pushes us one more layer deep into the mystery. The mystery is, Paul writes, the mystery is God loves to overcome our powerlessness. He loves it. He's not embarrassed or offended by it the way we are. But this is where his love shines and shows itself at its most passionate. In verse 10, Paul calls it God's manifold wisdom. Strange verse, verse 10. Paul is saying... He parades his spare-nothing, bare-all-costs love in front of the powers and the rulers in the heavenly places. I know that's confusing. I'm not going to tell you why it means this. I'm just going to tell you what it means. The powers and rulers in the heavenly places are all the rough forces in the universe that want to keep you out of God's grace. And he gathers them all together and he lines them up. And your God boasts of his love for you. He flaunts the way he loves you. On earth, when the cross and resurrection are mentioned, people turn their backs and they turn up their noses and they ridicule and make jokes of them. But in the heavenly places, when the cross and resurrection of Jesus come up, They make the rough forces catch their breath and fall silent. There's no argument against a love like that. There is no argument against a love that reaches into your powerlessness. And if all this is true, Paul is saying, don't lose heart. If all this is true, you can't lose heart. The trouble is, back here on earth, we do lose heart. And the reason is we don't believe these things. All of our lives are spent trying to escape our powerlessness. Trying to make ourselves feel powerful. It's why we go on crash diets. We take steroids and supplements. We move on hot stock tips. We try to climb our way into a certain group of people. Financial Physical, emotional, social, relational power is what we're after. But what this means is that in our attempts to escape our powerlessness, we're actually trying to escape the gospel. That's right, that's exactly what we're doing. And now I'm going to tell you when no one else will ever say to you from a pulpit, most likely. And some of you will hate it, and some of you will come to life, and which of those groups you fall into is not up to me. The mystery is, Paul is saying, the mystery is 
you will never be happier than when you are powerless. Than when you are reeling. Because that's when you need a Savior in a manger. That's when you need a Savior on a cross. That's when you need a Savior belly laughing on the outside of a tomb. That's when you need a Savior in whom we were predestined before the foundation of the world and nothing can ever take us away from Him. And that's when you need a Savior who has all things under His feet, even your suffering, and He's doing good in it and by it. That's when you need a Savior who tears down dividing walls and saves by grace. You need a Savior to do these things only when you know in your bones that you can't do them for yourself. Grace is only grace for the powerless, for the strong, for those who can take care of themselves, for those who can provide for themselves or like to think that they can. Grace is an annoyance like a bosomy aunt at a family reunion who wants to smother you with unwelcome kisses on sour breath. But for the powerless, grace is a lover's kiss that lingers and leaves you dreaming of the next time. Love is only love when you can't negotiate it. Love is only love when you can't take it or leave it. When you can't have it on your terms and by your designs. Love is only love when it doesn't make any sense. And yet you need it to sweep you up and carry you away. And the only way for you to participate in it is by diving in and swimming. The mystery is, Paul writes, the mystery is... This is what makes our powerlessness precious. A prison cell. The loss of a job. A difficult marriage. An accident scene. A body that can't get out of a hospital bed. The need for money you don't have in the bank or the means to come up with. An idol that has you on its leash. An addiction that has you pinned and stands on your chest. A reputation you can't fix. A sin that dominates you and feeds on you. An ego that won't quit but should have long ago. A tongue like a serpent or a wildfire, a heart black and cold and ungiving as a subterranean cave, a relationship with a child that's falling apart. It bruises and crumbles every time you touch it. A loved one you can't help. Fears so strong. Fears you don't have words to explain to anyone else. Fears that make us hide deep inside ourselves and not want to come out. These are the places where we want to lose heart. 
And Paul writes, no. These are the places where you will know his grace. This is where his love breaks through for you. Don't lose heart. Do the opposite, he says in verse 12. Build your faith. Increase it. Expand it. Add on to it. Approach him with the boldness and confidence of one in desperate need and convinced of love. Believe your theology, Paul is writing. This is where he will come to us and win and show us his glory. If I ever told you the story of my friend in seminary who was confiding to a professor, he was thinking about sin and brokenness and the needs of people, and that going into the ministry, he would have to tell a congregation somewhere of the good news of Jesus week after week, when most days he had trouble believing it for himself. He said to our professor with tears in his eyes, I feel like I'm in way over my head. And our professor smiled and put a hand on his shoulder and said, The secret of the Christian life is we are always in way over our heads. Because that's where we learn that Jesus is not in over his head. And that's the mystery. That's the mystery that you're supposed to know, not from a confused distance, standing outside of it. That's the mystery you're supposed to know from the inside with rejoicing. And now that you do know it, just like Paul, writing from prison, and happy as a clam... Just like Paul, the mystery is yours to enjoy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord God, you are the true and great lover of those in need. And so much so that you meet us and love us with the full strength and scope of your love in the mess of our powerlessness. And for it we thank you. In the places where we should lose heart, we ask you to move us in the opposite direction, that our hearts swell with faith and confidence and boldness. This is exactly where the Lord wants to bring to us the full conviction of his love for us. And we thank you, Lord, though it's hard to thank you for these things. We thank you for putting us in way over our heads because this is where we learn that our Jesus is never out of his depth. In all of this, Jesus gives to us his salvation and grace. And because we are small of heart and our faith wavers and wants to turn tail and run, 
you give to us bread and wine. The good news that you have called us by your election to be your own, that you have saved us in the merciful works of Christ Jesus, fulfilled and accomplished with nothing left for us to add to them. The good news that you will always keep us and never forsake us. It's all given to us in a bite of bread and a gulp of wine. And for our small hearts, revive us. That in our suffering, mysteries will be unfolded. And we will not lose heart. But we will know as never before the goodness and grace and love of our God. And now, church, you who have suffered along with the church in every age, what is it that you say you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.